0: You're listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3. While you're turning there, we welcome you this morning, especially those who might be uh, visiting with us today. We're glad that you're here and uh Thankful you've been here to join us today. We'd love to connect with you, and we invite you to stop by the Welcome Center after you leave today, We we'll give you some more information about our church, but we're so glad that you've come to be with us. We've been studying as a church. We started Daniel a few weeks ago. We're in chapter 3, and we're looking at one of the great stories of Daniel this morning, of Daniel's friends, fellow Daniel. Jewish exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is the only chapter in Daniel, by the way, where Daniel is not mentioned. I'll make another comment a little bit later about that. But even as he's not mentioned here, we we don't forget that the main character of every Old Testament story is, is God. That is right. Our good and faithful God. And so we're always looking at how the Lord is working Uh, in his word. So let's look at Daniel 3 together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and therefore... At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Look down in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods Or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And now if you are ready... and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. (laughs) Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, your word to us today, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear, you would open our eyes to see the glories of your work and Christ for us, and, and Lord, that you would also work in our hearts that we might be faithful, Lord, to you. I pray that you would use me as your servant today, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth, and I pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. In the late 1930s, during the heyday of Joseph Stalin's reign in the Soviet Union, there was a meeting in one of the provinces there, uh, and during that meeting that Stalin was not present by the way but during the meeting something had come up about Joseph Stalin their leader and it prompted a standing ovation for him but at the same time it also triggered a standing dilemma for them because no one wanted to be the first one to stop clapping and sit down and so it just kept going and it kept going and it kept going finally there was a elderly man there who was simply unable to stand any longer and he he took his seat and the next day he was promptly arrested for not giving homage long enough to his dictator autocratic rulers seem to not be able to resist the desire for self-adulation, self-worship, if you will. And Nebuchadnezzar is no exception (laughs) to this this rule. These opening words in verse 1 talk about an image of gold. It reminds us of his dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. The dream of an image or statue, remember the head was made of gold representing King Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> and the body was made of other materials, each depicting uh, kingdoms that would come after him, but whom they would all be, end up being destroyed by this stone kingdom, this supernatural stone kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's statue here in chapter 3, notice, is made entirely of gold, and it is apparently uh, an, an attempt to counteract this dream. It, it was his uh, defined statement, if you will, that uh, there would be no after this when it came to his kingdom, uh, that his glory would continue forever. And uh, it's not clear whether the image is a picture of him, a statue of him, or his God, uh, or perhaps both of, of some sense. But the text repeats six times for us that Nebuchadnezzar had set up this statue. In other words, even if the statue represented some other deity or himself, no one was left in any doubt about whose power lay behind this image's existence. It was Nebuchadnezzar. Dugwood writes this, in contrast to Daniel's confession in chapter 2, that it was the God of heaven who set up kings and deposes of them. This statue was Nebuchadnezzar's defiant declaration that as king, he could set up gods for his people to worship. What's more is that this image was set up in the, we're told, in the plain of Dura, which some believe, I don't think this is certain, but some believe was the location of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Now, even if location is not for sure, the herald's proclamation in verse 4 when he says, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages." It it indicates, it reminds us of that event, that it indicates that this call to worship this statue was was designed to, to be some kind of reversal of the consequences of Babel and to unite the whole world together in all languages coming together to worship this image in defiance of God. The mere size of it proclaims this. Notice it's 60 cubits tall, approximately 90 feet tall. And again, it's unclear whether, perhaps whether the image was gold-plated or whether it was solid gold. But the, the message Nebuchadnezzar was intending to share, I think, is very clear that he was worth every ounce of such praise. It was meant to dominate, this huge picture, speaking of His domination, His reign, His worthiness to be worshipped. And even the statues unveiling here is filled with all kinds of religious overtones. Verse 2, it's noted that this was a dedication of this, and it was enhanced by all of the orchestra pieces that we we mentioned, the commands to fall down, the commands to worship, verse 5. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This presented quite a crisis for Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. After all, the first commandment of God is Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. And it goes on, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. No other gods before me. The command is very clear, isn't it? For God's people, don't bow down and worship other gods. Don't bow down and serve them. It's clear what they should do. Oh, but there's... There's a cost to this. I think it's the first thing we note from the passage, that is the the pressure on faithful worshipers, the pressure of it. And it's helpful to think about that pressure because it's it's so relevant for us even today, the, the pressure that is. You think of the characteristics of this. First of all, the pressure was initiated from authority. Again, there's so much repetition here. You can't help but notice the repetition of King Nebuchadnezzar, his name. It's mentioned six times. Literally, it's something like Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Six times there in in verses 1 through 7. It only appears twice the rest of the story. And so it's like it's being mentioned over and over again to remind. It seems like the writer is stressing for us the authority that came with this edict. This has the, the pressure that is coming from the sheer weight of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. He's the one who said to do this. Brings to mind a little bit Acts chapter 4, when you remember Peter and John, the apostles were commanded to go they were, they were told, do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Authorities told them to do that, which they later said, we must obey God rather than men. There was pressure growing on the apostles from the governing authority. And there are still places in the world today where Christians are very much oppressed, forbidden to practice their faith and to proclaim Jesus. That pressure is growing here, isn't it? It's not easy to withstand. We note the pressure. Secondly, it insisted on conformity, didn't it? The storyline goes something like this. The people are gathered, verses 2 and 3, where they're told, verses 4 and 5, they're threatened in verse 6, and therefore all fell down and worshiped. It's a pressure to conform. Davis colorfully comments this. He said, as he's called, the praise band plays, The crowd gets its backsides in the air and its noses in the sand and it enjoys job security. They felt they had no choice. They had to do it. There's a tremendous amount of pressure to conform and that pressure still exists today, doesn't it? It's the old peer pressure comment. uh, Everybody's doing it right? Everybody's doing this. This is, just, this is just where the culture is headed. Why aren't you going to go along? Are you going to be a stick in the mud? Everybody's doing this. this is everybody, everybody's going, you don't have to say anything. I mean, everybody's just doing this, and, and really no one will even notice if you just jump right in there. I mean, it's no big deal. Perhaps some of you are experiencing this at different places in your life. I, I, I've talked to some of you experiencing this at work, your workplace. where your company has gotten on um, the woke train and having bowed down to the gods of diversity and perversity. And now they're pressuring you to conform. And how can you be so unkind? How can you be so unloving? why can you be so intolerant they asked just follow the masses do what you're told to do and and if you don't there's a cost right this pressure was intensified by malice and intimidation verse 8 at that time certain chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused The Jews. It suggests that these folks had some other motives than just the glory of King Nebuchadnezzar. There was maliciousness involved. Perhaps they were jealous, as verse 12 suggests. uh, There are certain Jews, they told King Nebuchadnezzar, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no attention to you or to your edict to worship this image of gold. Gold. And then the intimidation comes in, verses 13 and 15, and that's not hard to see, is it? It's really just three words burning, fiery furnace. That's all you got to say. I mean, nobody wants to be roasted, right? Alive, And, and that tends to motivate you. Verse 15 if you do not worship, You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's a a picture. We've seen this already. There's two kingdoms, right? There's two kingdoms, two empires in total contradiction to one another. Jeff Thomas explains it like this. He says, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar has no place for those who will not sing the songs of the pagan choir and kneel before this idol. Do you not feel some of that pressure today, Christian? It comes to us, perhaps in in our, our place, our land, in more subtle kinds of ways, but we hear that all the time, and we're constantly pressured to keep, you need to keep your beliefs private. Keep them to yourself. Um, We're we're told that our beliefs need to be kept out of the public sphere, that faith doesn't belong in the public sphere at all, especially out of politics because it it will threaten the the unifying dogma of separation in church and state. We just have to go along. We're told we just have to tolerate, not, not just tolerate the perversity around us, but in fact we must accept it and even affirm that perversity or we will be canceled, cast out, litigated, demoted, fired. We're not facing a literal fiery furnace, thank the Lord, but the pressure to join in that pagan choir of Babylon is all around us. You not feel the winds of Babylon blowing hard against your face today, believer? And I would ask you the question: if you're not feeling those winds blowing hard, is it because you've already taken a knee to the pagan choir? You've already joined. I think one of the ways that to deal with that pressure is to realize it for what it is. Because, again, as you notice, as the narrator tells this story, there's a bit of repetition, there's a bit of mockery, there's a bit of sarcasm and how he he tells it. First, you have the fact that we're told in verses 1 and verse 15 that Nebuchadnezzar made this idol. It was something man-made, so they're to fall down and they're to worship something that has been made by man. And then we're told over and over again, as I mentioned, that, that phrase, set up. If you just uh, underline that phrase, nine times it's mentioned. And you get the feeling that he's trying to imp- maybe share with us that th- this, has, this is a bit of a set up job here. And then third, you have all this pomp and circumstance and the dedication and the orchestra and the bowing down, and it's repeated over and over again. There's kind of a mocking way that this story is told. And so while there is a a fearfulness certainly to all of this, there's also a sense that the writer wants us to see that this is a farce. It's a farce. Everybody who was there knew it was a farce. Everybody knew this was, this was crazy what we're doing out here in the plain of Dura, bowing down to this, this silly golden uh, image that, that is, is here. It was man-made, probably ridiculous-looking, And they're out there bowing down to it. When we're tempted to bow down and worship the gods of this age, while there is pressure to that, there's no doubt. It doesn't take away all of the trembling that's involved at times in that. But it's really helpful to remember there's no truth in it. It's just not, there's no truth. There's no truth of God's. In fact, the farce reminds us of the emptiness of it. And so, if if you can recognize what is going on in in our world today for what it is, it, it will help you to not be so intimidated by the pressure to conform to it. Well, it brings us, secondly, to the obedience of faithful worshipers. Nebuchadnezzar is furious when he finds out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not bowing down and worshiping the golden image. I mentioned earlier Daniel was not there. I, I I think it's unclear, obviously, where he was at, but, but I think it's true that he simply was not there. Well, I don't think we should assume that Daniel's the one that's joined in the throngs there. He uh, perhaps is on king's business elsewhere. He's serving in the, the court himself, but But the fact that only three men in this crowd refuse to bow down, it's really something, isn't it? And, And it reminds us that standing up for God will often be a lonely activity. There are times in life when to do what is right, we can't simply hide from the crowd. And there are other times just very vividly where our obedience is known only to God. But either way, we remember that the most important audience that we're trying to please is always God, God. He gives them another chance to worship the idol, but he is clear in verse 15 that if they do not, they're going to be cast into this burning fiery furnace and i i wonder i i can't imagine that, that the temptation was so strong for them think of the justifications that may have been going through their minds as they're faced with this 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 uh this fiery furnace maybe they thought to themselves you know this is it's just one time i mean if we could just do this one time i mean, this one time we'll live God has put them in this position they could have justified. God's put us in this position over the province of Babylon. How are we ever going to maintain a witness if we're dead? I mean, one time. Everybody knows this is a joke, by the way. Everybody there is probably punching each other. This is so crazy, you know, that we're out here doing this. Why don't you just go along with everybody and live? You're far from home, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, you have no families left. They don't know what you're doing. It's okay, no one will ever find out about this. And and remember, God is such a forgiving God. He'll forgive you for this. And on and on the justifications come. But their response, verses 16 through 18, really is the keynote of the chapter, isn't it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's a remarkable statement of faith. They first express their confidence in the power of God. Verse 17, our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. That's a response to Nebuchadnezzar's question in verse 15 when he says, and what? who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, our God can do that. The God of heaven can. And they've already seen something of that. They've proclaimed something of that. We remember Daniel's prayer and praise in chapter 2. Verse 20, when he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets up kings. God is omnipotent and they have no doubt about the ability of God. Secondly, they were completely submissive to God's will. And it's found in that phrase, verse 18, it's so powerful when they said, but if not... But if not, be it known to you, O King, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're sure about the ability of God to deliver them. There's no question God can deliver us. Our God can. We don't know what our God will do, O King. You may turn us into ashes in one sense, but in another sense, it doesn't matter because the bottom line is we will not serve and worship your God. Boy, Ferguson notes here in his little commentary, if there's any true faith in our hearts, we will want to stand up and cheer as we read those words. What matters to these young men is not whether they will be delivered. What matters is whether God will be obeyed and worshipped. You see that. The verb worship appears 11 times in the chapter. The word serve occurs five times. They're both referring to worship. So a total of 16 times it's mentioned about worship. That's the emphasis. What matters for these young Hebrew boys is not deliverance, but obedience. It's not security, but it's whether God will be worshiped. We could say this, their faith was not in their deliverance, their faith was in their God. He can deliver us from the fire, but if not, we still will not bow down. Faith, Davis writes this, faith does not predict God's ways, it simply holds to God's Word. You shall have no other gods before me. It leaves the results to God's hand. I think there's a great sense in which we should pause and recognize that, that that if the story ended right here, the real miracle of Daniel chapter 3 is in this particular fact, isn't it? This These three young men who refuse to worship and Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state, whether they're consumed in the fire in the very next verse or whether they're not. It, what matters is obedience to God. That, that, that they have decided, the miracle is they have decided in their hearts that they will keep the first commandment even if it kills them. You know, in some sense, this is and, and continues to be the miracle of the confessing church today. This is, where, this is where we are at. The important thing is not whether we continue to exist or not, or whether we, we are successful or prosperous by the world's definition. It's whether or not we will resist joining the, the pagan choir and refuse to bow down to worship its gods. You understand in God's eyes that that is is faithfulness. Whether we are delivered or not is not the issue. Faithfulness to God and His Word is what matters. Just as these three Hebrew young men committed themselves to uncompromising obedience, whatever comes... The call is that we would do the same. Which brings us third to the deliverance of faithful worshipers. It, at first, it seems like the worst thing happens. I mean, first 19 is pretty scary. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and I, don't, I can only picture what this means. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and the Abednego. He was furious. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. He ordered some of the mightiest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and the Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. The fire is so hot, verse 22 tells us, that those men, mighty men of his army, they were killed in the process. So this entire scene is one of just utter helplessness, hopelessness of this situation for God's people, but then something remarkable happens, doesn't it? (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar has to check, see if his contacts are in or not. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, that's true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. In a miraculous way, Shadrach, Meshach, and the Abednego were delivered from the flames. Who is this fourth? Man, there's a lot of debate about that. King Nebuchadnezzar describes in verse 25 as having the appearance like a son of the gods. Later in verse 28, he describes him as an angel sent by God. So is this an angel? Is this this the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ? I tend to think that it is, but... The text is not clear about that, but but either way, the fourth man represents the presence of God with His people, doesn't it? In the prophet Isaiah, the Lord had promised His people who were headed toward exile. Isaiah forty three two When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you, and when you walk through fire you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. I think it's important for us when we read a text like this to recognize what makes this story great is is the uniqueness of it that this is this miraculous def, uh, deliverance is, it's not a blueprint for every time that you have that you get in a difficult situation or go through the fire sort to speak it's not it's not a guarantee that god's people are always delivered in this way and in fact you know that history has shown us that but it's still comforting to us isn't it that the lord doesn't promise that we won't have waters and rivers and fires to go through, but the fact that that it is true that when it comes to to God, He always seems to find us when we're in those places. You testify to that believer. Sometimes it's in the operating room, sometimes it's in uh, the waiting room, sometimes it's at the funeral home. Sometimes it's at the graveside. Sometimes it's in the house after it's over. Sometimes it's on the plain of Dura, thousands of miles away from your home. God finds His people. He doesn't always shield us from sufferings, dangers, and loneliness, but the fourth man is always present with His people. Rejoice in that, church. Amen? Rejoice in it. I wonder if Peter had this story on his mind in the New Testament when he spoke of the fiery trials that come upon us as Christians. You remember that? 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. No, it's not strange, he says. A couple chapters before that, he promised that we would be kept by God's power through faith, just like these three Hebrew boys were, and it's so comforting. But if they were courageous to stand by faith in, in God who is able to save... It begs the question, how much more reason do we have uh, to stand today having experienced the ultimate deliverance of Jesus Christ, His life, death, resurrection for us? Do we not know this, that we have a God who saves and delivers and who has saved us and delivered us in the most incredible way? I want to close with these words from Jeff Thomas. These are words about the fourth man. He asks this question to begin with. He says, what do we see when we flood this passage with the light of Calvary? Don't we see the Son of God in the furnace? Do our minds turn to Golgotha, to the cross? Do we think of how the Lord Jesus Christ, in visiting us, entered the lake of fire there for us? The flames of hell can never go out, but the Lord Christ voluntarily entering Calvary's hell for us that we might walk the cool glades of heaven in peace with Him upon the green pastures and by its still waters forever and ever. He writes, there is the Son of God in the furnace in Babylon, and he is there to protect every hair on the heads of his people, with whom he stands in the closest solidarity. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, why persecutest thou me? Babylon decides it will hold a festival on the plain of Dura to celebrate its power. God determines to hold a festival on the hill of Golgotha to commemorate his grace. And while the whole world, while the whole world falls down and is worshiping man, the church, and the smallest remnant of three boys stands amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Dear church, in light of our Savior and Lord, let us continue to stand faithfully in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Lord, we thank You for this old, old story and yet in many ways sounds so real and contemporary with the things that are going on in our world today. Lord, we pray and ask that You would help us who know You to be faithful. That as the pressures get greater And the conformity, the pressure to conform gets stronger, Lord, that we would stand faithfully on your word, remembering Jesus Christ and all he's done for us. We pray for those today that might be here and perhaps they have been caught up in this world as we sing the first song of our service today. Lord, please help us all to turn our eyes to Jesus. And as we do, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do your saving work in hearts and lives today and uh, that you would help us, Lord, who believe to be faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast.